Are you ready to learn? Because my super experienced guests are ready to share some really valuable information. Make sure and listen all the way to the end to get help and support. So let's start with the best audio experience. Hello, good people, and welcome to our show. By the way, I don't want to discriminate bad people. Welcome to our show as well. Everyone, welcome to our show. Today we discuss about EAT, Expertise Authority Trust. It's very important today uh, on Google if you want to rank your website high. And uh, a few of websites that I promoted uh, were hit by this algorithm when Google launched in 2018. Yeah, we lost traffic. Uh, that's why I'm so excited to learn more about that with Michael Levitz. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, it's a big pleasure. Check out your profile. You know this topic. You can share a lot of valuable insights. Before we start, tell more about your experience, background, and why you decided to speak today about EAT. You know, most of my career was in media. I worked in journalism. I was a columnist at the New York Daily News, an editor at Hearst Magazines, an editor at the New York Post, a producer at NBC News. Uh, and then I went off on my own and I started my own website and it was a content related site. Uh, we were fact checking celebrity news. And uh, the truth is having worked in the industry for about two decades, I had some very, very good sources within the entertainment industry and what I was seeing is there, there were a lot of inaccurate articles. And that's why I want to start this fact-checking company. I think the impetus for me was when I was at NBC, uh, there was a story by the blogger Perez Hilton. Um, and he had reported, and I believe it was 2006 or 2007, that Fidel Castro had died. It wasn't true. Mm -hmm. And the internet was very different back then. It isn't what it is today. And it was more of an echo chamber in which everyone sort of picked up other people's stories and would simply say, according to. Uh, and that was their sort of way of getting away ar around liability or, or even saying, well, we don't know if it's true, but it's according to. Uh, and, and the fact of the matter is Fidel Castro had died maybe about nine years later. Um, mm -hmm. And I used to joke with Perez afterwards that, okay, you got the story wrong, but for the rest of your life, you can lay claim to the fact that you were the first who reported that Fidel Castro had died. <laughs> early almost, but you were the first. Um, and one of the things that I realized was I was, a, like I said, an old school journalist uh, with a new website competing against big brands like People Magazine, Entertainment Weekly, Us Magazine, which was actually one of the magazines that I had edited. Um, but, I, but I knew the characters involved. I knew the actors. I knew the producers. And I knew when these stories were untrue. But the hardest part really was, and I remember vividly a conversation with the great John Mueller of Google during one of those Search Central Hangouts, um, saying to him like, hey, but our stuff is, is, is accurate. Ours is true. Uh, and obviously, he couldn't tell me specifically what we were doing wrong. But he gave me an invaluable advice. And he said, your stories may be the most accurate, and you may have the best sources, but you need to prove to your users that your story is true. And then in turn, of course, Google will pick up those signals. And, and I really sort of struggled for a long time. How do I prove, you know, Us Weekly says, a source says George Clooney's getting divorced, but I'm speaking to, let's say, someone very close to him. <laughs> <laughs> or or closer <laughs> and mm -hmm. uh you know but they don't want to be named 
I'm not saying that specific instance, but often times people don't want to be named. So they go under a source close to or, or an insider. So how do you prove that the story is not true? How do you make it transparent to the reader that your sources are better? Now, a better example of this, of course, is um, the tabloids love doing stories about Prince uh, William is going to ascend the throne, leapfrog his dad, who will step aside, you know, and he'll go from the queen to him. And and they all would write these articles. But the fact of the matter is, uh, it's not even the queen. They would say the queen has decided her grandson will be king. But it's not even the queen's decision. There actually are statutes on the books. There's a thing called the Settlement Act of 1701, which talks about accession to the throne. It's out there. It's mm -hmm. on the web. It's on the royal website. The queen can't do that. Parliament has to do it. So uh, what we would try to do, and we would try very hard, was to find third-party examples out there for us to link to mm -hmm. and to show the reader. Yes, the magazine says they have a source, but we're showing you on the royal website that this is not even a possibility. It can't happen. And the same thing would happen with stories about celebrities getting divorced. Sometimes we would say, you have to go on the record or you know, point to something that we can direct our readers to. So what, what evolved over that time was, uh, and it wasn't something that I had thought about as expertise, authoritativeness, or trustworthiness. It was really uh, what came to me and my staff was, how do we show the reader, whether it's through links or listing sources underneath our stories, that our story is actually more reliable because one, you want the user to know the story is true. And in terms of getting traffic from search, Google's mission is simply to surface the most reliable results. And if you can spoon feed them the way that you got from point A to point B very transparently, you will ultimately rise higher in search. And I sometimes argue that EAT, the T should not only be for trustworthiness, but also for transparency. Mm -hmm. Love it. Yeah, so valuable. Uh, before um, I will ask the second question, um, I want to share my story. You know, uh, in 2019, uh, I traveled to Turkey with my family. When I came back to Ukraine, uh, I got flu, you know, uh, and uh, recovered for 45 days with a lot of antibiotics, pills, mm. shakes, many other stuff. That was hard. And uh, at that point, I decided, no way, I can't go ahead with that because if I recovered 45 days from common flu, that means something is wrong with my immune system. I need to change my lifestyle. That's why I started to take cold shower every single day, uh, eating healthy food, uh, changed many other attitudes. And, you know, for over uh, three, four years, I don't get any flu even one time. Uh, if I want to share the story with uh, readers, to create a blog to tell about my experience that it's possible to overcome many uh, such diseases uh, without pills, shakes, medicine, pharmacy, uh, just uh, to pay attention to the right lifestyle, uh, for example, like taking cold shower. Um, 
how Google can understand that uh, it's transparent. And because, you know, Google can uh, analyze experience of uh, these medical websites, but this industry, I don't know, a billion dollar companies can occupy the top 10 results. Is it possible for uh, bloggers like me? Um, of, of course, uh, uh, you know, I, I pay a lot more attention with digital marketing. I have no time to uh, create this blog. But for uh, someone else who want to jump on this field to share uh, story uh, about uh, how to uh, change bad uh, habits uh, with good ones, how you can treat your body, uh, uh, how what to do uh, at that point. You know, it's funny because as a guest, you always want to be the most accommodating and you want to give the answer <laughs> that you want. But the truth is, this is a very difficult position you're in because it, it borders on health, medicine. Mm -hmm. And as you know, yeah. uh, there are these sites that are known as YMYL, your money, your life, right? Yeah. And those are the ones that Google pays particular mm -hmm. attention to because they don't want bad financial advice uh, being disseminated in search in the same with health or medicine. Um, what I do think is there is value as long as you make a disclaimer and say, this is not medical advice I'm dispensing, but I can tell you from my own personal experience. And to me, that probably sort of dovetails almost in a way with products, right? You know, you wanna show that you've used a product when you recommend it. So you can say, this may not be for everyone, but I can tell you from my own experience, 45 days, couldn't get over a cold. Change my habits, it helped. Will it help you? I don't know. But what I can tell you is, you know, uh, eating better will always help you. And I'm sure whatever diet that you're on, there's probably uh, some other sort of similar diet that you could link to and link to the benefits of that diet. Um, mm -hmm. I, to be honest, I don't know a lot about diets, but, you know, I, I believe like low carb, high protein is probably good. Probably mm -hmm. not mm -hmm. a lot of fatty food is good. Uh, I know from going to, you know, my doctor, you cut out fried food you, and you exercise. <laughs> and, you know, if you're advocating these things, well, it doesn't make you a doctor. It doesn't necessarily make you an expert, but you can give your own experiential advice from that. And as long as it's not contrary to medical practice, right? You know, as long as you're saying, as long as you don't throw in things like, well, I take an early morning shower and I eat very healthy and then I smoke a pack of cigarettes and then I go for an <laughs> afternoon run. Whoa, whoa, whoa. What was that thing? Uh, go for a run? No, no, no. The other thing, smoke a pack <laughs> of cigarettes. You know, as, as long as you're not giving things that are clearly bad advice. But I, I to be forthright, I think that's a very hard thing to do. Um, I think you could probably gain followers um, and people who subscribe to that. And maybe people will become commenters or give other advice like, yes, in, in addition to what Anatoly does, I also do this. Um, you know, a positive uh, mind is supposed to be very helpful. Uh, some mm -hmm. people find whatever type of spirituality, whether it's behind religion or it's meditation, uh, that's supposed to be very good for you as well. But again, that's not medicine. Uh, mm -hmm. And as long as there's a disclaimer, I think it can still grow in popularity because if people find the same positive benefits that you have, they'll want to tell their friends. It may not be mm -hmm. 
uh, juggernaut uh, in in search, but that's okay. Getting a lot of direct yeah. followers, as long as you're dispensing something that is safe, that is healthy, that you perhaps others can attest to. Maybe there are things, like I said, dietary that you can link to where this cuts the risk of heart disease by X percent, then it should do very well. Love it. Love it. Yeah. Uh, I think uh, I remember when I found a few companies that earn a hundred million dollars, you know, but they have SEO traffic like a thousand people a month. You know, <laughs> they don't care a lot about SEO. So right. SEO is not the last thing that you can provide for your website. If you can't win the top 10 ranking positions, that means, yeah, I agree with you. You can go to social media to grow your audience, to go ahead with that. You know, it's funny because I, I truly believe SEO is one of the great things in life because my, my, my overall thesis is you can have the best article in the world or the best product in the world, but if no one knows about it, what's the point? Um, mm -hmm. That said, um, I also think there is something to be said for uh, just doing quality content and just making it for the user. Uh, I. The analogy I sometimes give is you want to play as a, let's say, as a, as a member of the orchestra, you mm -hmm. want to play to the audience. The audience are your users, your readers. You don't want to play to the band. The band is Google. Now, Google might enjoy what you play if you play really well, but ultimately your audience are your visitors. I, I seem to believe, I seem to find that there is a very strong correlation between putting in the time and creating good content. And that, that may mean putting something aside for a few days, coming back, building on it over time. But when you have a really strong piece of content, the users find it, whether it's through Google, through social media, they will find it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. Uh, I have the question about... Um... The score of EAT, for example, uh, uh, if I check out volume, I can see like thousand people uh, can search for this uh, keyword. Uh, if I check out cost per click, I can understand the price uh, that companies are willing to pay for this click. Um, if I analyze keyword difficulty, I can uh, imagine how many backlinks I need to create. But how to measure EAT? You know, we have no any metrics. I don't understand what kind of uh eat quality i have from your experience can you lead uh audience in the right direction it, it's very hard right i i get that um one thing to do is to after you're done with a piece of content uh perhaps send it to a few friends who have no vested interest in this at all and ask them if it really answers their questions and if it doesn't answer all their questions about the topic what are their questions and then incorporate what you left out. But as you said, there is, there is no particular metric for it. Um, you can tell, right, you can tell page speed, very simple. You can tell all these other things. You can tell if uh, it's a bad user experience if there are too many ads on a site. But it is very tough to compare. Um, one thing though that I do, I, I A-B test, I don't even want to say how many stories a day because people think mm -hmm. it's absolutely out of my mind and wonder when I sleep. But um, <laughs> but I, I A-B test a lot of things. And when you've done it as long as I've done it and you've looked at as much content as I have, um, sometimes it becomes very 
transparent to me what is missing. Um, you know, whether it's an article about an individual and you've left out two or three data points about them, or if it's a news story uh, about, you know, something going on in the Senate and one article talks about what the vote was and who objected and who voted for it, but kind of left out what was at the core of what they were discussing. Um, I've seen many times where there have been stories about uh, individuals who were, let's say, compelled to testify uh, in a deposition or before Congress. Uh, and they talk about how the person reluctantly wanted to testify, but they didn't talk about what the backstory was, why, what brought them to that point. And I saw that in a few, and I don't want to, you know, I don't want to single out any uh, publications, but some very large publications. And I thought, that's awfully odd that they're not giving the background. They're just sort of giving you the drama of this person who didn't want to do this, but these people want them to do this. And it's like, but what led to that moment? And I think what you really have to do is just try to just be more robust in your reporting than others on that topic. It's a, it's a heavy load to carry. And it's, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's at times very daunting. Um, but, uh, but time after time, every story that I A-B test, the story that's more robust, that has the more data points, that has the more facts, simply rises higher in search. Um, mm -hmm. The best way to sort of do this is I find in the simplest one, it tends to be obituaries of, of famous people. Um, mm -hmm. I find that a lot of news organizations want to be first, right? So they, so a big celebrity dies, usually it's TMZ who reports it first with about <laughs> you know 50 words and then about another 25 outlets pile on and they take those 50 words and maybe add another 45, 50 words, but they want to be second or third and then they publish. And they might make it into the top stories carousel right away because they're one of three outlets reporting on it. But what mm -hmm. invariably happens is uh, a place like the New York Times, which has obituaries pre-written uh, and they're very robust. They talk about someone's early childhood, uh, the people they were romantically involved with, if they had children, what their professional uh, accolades are. They get very deeply into these stories. They don't miss anything practically. And then that New York Times story comes in and it knocks the other stories out. Right? And then the other stories are now scrambling to add more data points, more facts about the individual. And what often happens is that New York Times story, which is really robust as is, is getting all the links already because everyone's gonna to link to this New York Times story, which has everything in it. They might link to the original source, maybe if it's TMC, they might link to them. Uh, but there's so many hundreds of other outlets out there that just rush to be second, third, fourth, that they're then spending 30 minutes or an hour fixing it, while other places didn't rush in and wrote something more robust and are getting the links. So sometimes it's not so good to rush and get mm -hmm. a story up there. I find that Take your time, write something that's more robust. Look at what your competitors are doing. And you know, if you see something that you've left out, include it. Um, I'm not saying take their proprietary reporting, 
But if it's a obituary, for instance, going back to that example, most of this stuff is in the public domain about what awards they won and things like that. Uh, so spend that extra time, make it extra robust because that story will leapfrog the other smaller, thinner stories and will probably get links much like the original story and probably like, as I said, the New York Times. Yeah, I think you, you shared about uh, linkable content when you create uh, content that people, uh, webmasters, websites, editors want to link. Can you tell more about uh, creating linkable content? How to create content that will provide a strong reason to get uh, these links, to deserve these links? Because I, uh, I read a study from uh, Brian Dean and he shared uh, on the, uh, in the last study about getting five thousand links if if i remember correctly from creating some linkable pages uh yeah uh, love it uh, from your experience how to create this linkable content i see i'm a i'm a funny character that way i don't look at links in terms of trying to get them i mean it's great mm -hmm. when you do get them i really and it may be because of my background in journalism mm -hmm. my my whole thing is about writing really good content and if you write really good content the links will find you. The readers will find you. It may mm -hmm. take a while. It's a slow burn. I remember when I started my fact-checking company. I started in July of 2009. And December of 2009, um, I said to my wife, I said, maybe this was a mistake. You know, I had a nice, <laughs> I had a nice job beforehand. Maybe going off on my own was, was a big mistake. Uh, and, you know, I stuck with it and we produced better content and we started to learn more about what users wanted. And ultimately that dovetails with what search engines want. And by Jan I'm sorry, by July of 2010, we had a million unique visitors a month by the following year. And it was a small team of two at that time, we had 2 million unique visitors a month. And by year three, we had 4 million unique visitors a month. Uh, and it's simply because we were doing quality work. We weren't posting 30 stories a day. We were posting eight, maybe 10. I then made a mistake. Mm -hmm. I said to myself, if we're getting 100% uh, increase year over year, why don't we hire more people and churn out more content. And that seems like a reasonable equation, right? If you do 2x times 2x times 2x, but that doesn't work that way. What mm -hmm. ultimately was happening was we were going a little off mission of just fact-checking. We were writing other celebrity-related stories, and it wasn't just fact-checking. Sometimes it was a recap of a TV show or a, a funny comment someone made on one of these talk shows and we blew it up into a bigger story uh we were going off mission that was first mistake second mistake was when we started churning out more stories we went from about eight to ten stories to about 30 sometimes even 40 stories a day but those 40 stories were not uh robust at all they weren't substantive we were just churning it out and ultimately what i was doing was I was creating a thin content factory unknowingly. Mm -hmm. And that's when we got hit, uh, you know, by uh, Panda. Mm -hmm. And we got crushed.
And I didn't know much about SEO. That's when I started to say, wait a minute, what's going on here? You know, we're doing 100% year after year, and we're now doing more content. Shouldn't we theoretically be getting more traffic? And that's when I really started to understand it's about the nuts and bolts of good content. You know, answer the who, what, where, when, how, and why. Um, mm-hmm. And then go beyond that if you can. Find experts who can lend credence to your work. Um, and so it took me a while to figure that out. And that goes back to that first thing I was saying about John Mueller. He was saying, you know, prove to your audience why you're more trustworthy. And as I started to analyze what stories were doing well and which ones didn't do well, it was the stories that were very thin. It was the stories we mm-hmm. were slapping together because it was a breaking news story and we wanted to be part of the discussion. And what I realized was, go back to the old formula of maybe 10 stories, maybe six stories one day, maybe 12. But don't just churn out stuff for the sake of churning out content. And what ultimately happened was we did far better than we had done before. You know, mm-hmm. And part of the strategy ultimately was I then identified what was thin and you know, we, we uh, removed it from the index. Uh, and we focused only on good, well-reported, and robust articles. And that, that was the secret sauce. And that was before I knew anything about EAT. It was simply doing good reporting, giving the reader as many facts, as much data as you can, and backing it up as, you, as best as you can with, uh, with transparent sourcing. Mm-hmm. Love your story. Yeah. Interesting. Can you tell about thin content more? Uh, what does it mean uh, for readers, uh, for listeners who don't understand uh, what thin content means? Because uh, Google denies uh, the number of words, counting the number of words for any page. Uh, so uh, from your experience, thin content means that. Can you tell? Right. So the, right, that's the problem, right? So a lot of people think thin content means word count. And where it Mm -hmm. gets a little muddied and gray is that if you look at a ton of content and you compare two stories on the same subject, oftentimes the story that has more words does better. But it's not because it simply has more words. You know, you can fill your article with nonsense or use additional adverbs like very and extremely just to stretch it out but that doesn't make it better the reason why it sometimes dovetails where the wordier story does better in search is because that article simply has more background information more data so if i were to talk about um you know, uh, there was, I, I didn't even really read the story. I saw the headlines just moments before we went on, but apparently there was a, a tragic helicopter crash in West Virginia. Uh, and mm-hmm. one, of the, one of the headlines said it was a Vietnam era uh, helicopter. So again, didn't read the article, but what I'm guessing is if you did an article that just said six people tragically lost their lives in a helicopter crash in West Virginia, uh, and gave a few more details about it, you're not going to do as well as an article that maybe mentions who the victims were. Uh, 
tells you a little more about the topography of where they crashed. Because in one of the headlines, I did say mountainous region. Uh, so suddenly you start, even, even just reading the headlines, I was able to see like, oh, how would I do this? Well, without, without even reading it, right? I knew that I would have to mention the topography, maybe the fact that it was mountainous caused it. I don't know about the visibility. Um, maybe the fact that it was a Vietnam era helicopter. So that means we're talking now uh, a helicopter that's about 55 years old, yeah. right? Um, so, you know, just saying six people died in a helicopter crash in West Virginia, yeah, that does answer it, right? It, it says what the story is about. But when you get into the weeds of it and you expand more, uh, that's where you end up with a more robust article. And with the more robust article, what you end up with is more words. Well, it's more words because they have four more paragraphs about what the circumstances of the crash were, what kind of helicopter it was, who the individuals who died were. Um, so that's why there is this overlap often, not always, but often uh, between word count and what's considered thin and what's considered more robust reporting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, interesting. Uh, okay, I, I have the question about uh, be the first. For example, if you share stories, uh, how is important to be uh, faster than uh, other publications that can post totally the same stories for Google? Because, you know, if uh, most readers read the story, they're not interested, uh, so uh, engagement rate will be low. What do you think uh, to be the first on uh, that strategy? You know, I used to think being the first was really important. Mm -hmm. And one thing that I would see when I would look at Google Analytics and other things like Chartbeat, things like that, uh, which measure in real time how you're doing, what I would see is if we were second on a story, there'd be this big spike. And then there'd be this giant drop off. If the story was hastily written and we just got the bare facts in there and said, oh, we're going to come back to this and make it more robust. And you see this giant spike. And then by the time we were done with the story, everyone else who hadn't pressed publish yet, who hadn't been crawled, indexed, and rendered, they were spending their time doing a better story. They would just knock us out of top stories. They'd knock us out of Google News. And rarely would you get back in. So, mm -hmm. you know, I think there is something to be said for spending a little more time uh, uh, in writing a good article. Yes, there are outliers. When the actress Brittany Murphy tragically passed away, and this was now more than a decade ago, um, I think we were the first or second to report it. And we tweeted out the story. And one of the, it was on a Sunday, if I remember correctly, and one of the sports commentators from a football game uh, you know, said, oh, I, I see, you know, there's a report from Gossip Cop that Brittany Murphy passed away. And we didn't know at that point how it happened, but this sort of tremendous spike where you have got, you know, 10, 15, 20,000 people on one story and you say, whoa, whoa, like, how did that happen? And it happened because someone announced it on national television or maybe retweeted it as well. Um, but other than that, um, eventually what we saw was we were not getting organic search because other places came in and did 
a, a better job at reporting the story. I mean, I wish I could say that we did. We just did the bare bones because we wanted to be first. Um, and, and listen, that's a choice. That's a choice you can make. Um, do I want to get some quick social media traffic? It's unreliable. It's undependable. You can't predict it. Or do I want to write a good story? You know, I'm, I'm of the school. Write a really good story. If it works, mm -hmm. it works. If it doesn't, it doesn't. But at least I can go to bed at night saying I tried my best. Mm -hmm. Yeah, got it. Okay, I have the question about updating content. For example, if you use the strategy to create a lot of stories, that means some of them are obsolete in some days because people are not interested with this topic, they know about this news. What to do? Do you need to remove this content, redirect this content, or just leave it and get some possible traffic? That's a great question. So a major um, news organization asked me about a lot of content they had. And I just sort of skimmed through this. And I said, well, you know, I'm, I, I really said to them, let me just look randomly at what you have. And I saw there was a story about Bill Clinton playing saxophone at a fundraiser. I believe it was in New York. He did it on TV, <laughs> famously on the Arsenio Hall show. But he also, I think, did it at a fundraiser in New York. And I said, you think anyone's really searching Bill Clinton saxophone fundraiser, you know, today? And mm -hmm. they're like, no. <laughs> and I said, okay, what do you think we should do with this? And they were like, I don't know. And they said, should we get rid of it? And I said, don't, don't get rid of it. Just archive it. Just archive uh -huh. it. You should, you should have it, but it doesn't need to be indexed. There's no reason mm -hmm. you need to index everything. It could be archived. Um, so I think you sometimes have to make that calculation in your head. Do I really think someone's looking this up 10 years later? Um, you know, an example, if it's, uh, you know, someone in sports who did some sports feed 10, 12 years ago, like, are they looking it up unless it's one of those iconic moments? Probably not. Hmm. <laughs> um, <laughs> But in terms of things that are possibly evergreen or on a topic that lives on and on, I would say absolutely. Always revisit it. Always update it. Be transparent and say that it was updated. Um, and maybe even note some of the things in bullet point that were revisited and updated. Can't go wrong mm -hmm. with that. Yeah, valuable. Uh, okay, I have the question about uh, helping some of uh my audience you know uh i have students uh who always asking me uh, do i need to learn about aco today what kind of future will be uh for example if you started today without any skills knowledge experience uh what would you do to learn more about seo you know there's a beginner's guide that google has online it's really worth mm -hmm. reading um not going to make you an expert seo but it, what it will do is teach you at least what you should be thinking about when creating content. And maybe it will also help you do things that aren't violative or that would be frowned upon, like keyword stuffing or, or buying links, things like that, that you'll realize, oh, I definitely should not be doing this because I'll be penalized and there's almost no way of coming back from that. So I think that um, beginner's guide is really valuable. In fact, 
most people who I talk to and I work with, I always sort of forward them that. I forward them the quality raters uh, guidelines. I say to them, listen, you don't have to read the whole thing, but if you read the first, I think it's 80 pages or so, and you see how they compare high, medium, and low quality, that will give you insight into what's really being sought. Again, I understand where people think that that's just for Google, but it's really for your user. Mm -hmm. um, you know, one of the examples I give people also is the tendency is to people think like, why am I, you know, why am I, why am I playing to Google, right? Why am I mm -hmm. doing this just for Google? And the answer is twofold. One, yes, it's the biggest search engine in the world by far, and it can make a demonstrable difference in your life if you, you know, if Google shines kindly upon you. But the other real reason is um, Google's taking a lot of data points from users. So when they're recommending that you do X, Y, and Z, it's not because some engineer capriciously said, I want people to do this. No, they're taking the data points from actual users and they're saying, hey, this is what users want. And that's who your audience is. So in a way, Google's doing you a big favor by going through all the data for you and then just telling you, follow these rules. You know, Maybe you're not gonna be the, the greatest SEO, but at least you're gonna stay within the guidelines of what Google is saying users want. And I, you know, I think we know what some of those things are. For instance, a broken link doesn't seem like a big deal to people. Uh, and I don't think it's a giant penalty with Google. I would say if you had five broken links on your site, then it goes to the question of trustworthiness, like how trustworthy is a site that they didn't even check to see if these links work. But, but then you backpedal it a little. Um, you're the user and you're clicking on links and it's constantly broken, you, the user, are going to say, I don't know if I can trust this site. Like, what kind of, how, how authoritative can they be if every time I click on a link, it's broken? And the same thing goes with page speed. If you're just waiting for a site to open, you know, at a certain point, you say to yourself, like, how good is this site? I'm not saying it has to be the fastest. You don't need all, all green circles with the core web vitals. You don't need that. You just mm -hmm. need to be you know, a decent enough user experience that people don't, what you, the, the threshold in a way, I wouldn't say is low, but it's, it's not so high. If, if no one comments and complains, then you're doing okay. If they say to themselves, hey, this site is so slow, or this site has too many broken links, or does anyone proofread this? Look at all these typos here. If, if they're not saying that to themselves or in the comments section, you're probably okay. <laughs> yeah, love it, love it. Okay, I have the final question about the future of SEO. Uh, can you forecast your future? Uh, because we, we have many things are coming, like uh, metaverse, augmented reality. What do you think? What kind of future uh, can we expect today to consider it uh, and adapt our strategies for the future? You know, uh, maybe it's because of my age. Maybe I'm a little old-fashioned here. I, I think still sticking to the basics. I'll tell you one thing mm -hmm. that I've been looking at very strongly for a while, and I'm not going to name any of the names of these products, but I look at a lot of these companies that say, oh, we use AI, we use machine learning, you know, and, and we can tell you exactly what to write. And some of them advertise that they'll write the content for you. And I have tested, I can't tell you how many 
literally dozens of them. They're not, they're not that good. Um, mm -hmm. Maybe the first paragraph is good. And I, I think I posted something on LinkedIn on uh, about this. Right after the Super Bowl in, um, in the US, um, now I now I can't remember who the uh, who uh, the Rams beat, but you know I put it in like this team beat this team on this date, and some of these AI programs were telling me that the Rams played a team they didn't play in the Super Bowl, that it was a close game, but the Rams lost. Like that's the opposite of what happened. Um, think about it this way: so these AI programs are taking information that is available on the web. That's it. They don't know any more than what they can find on the web. And maybe they're not even finding everything on the web. And maybe they're also making bad connections. They're seeing the words Los Angeles Rams and Super Bowl, and they're thinking about like, oh, the Rams years ago played the Patriots to get into, you know, possibly to get into the Super Bowl. And now they're reporting about that. Like, that's wrong. So uh, think about it this way. Think of everything that's known about you on the web, right? <laughs> Throw it into a machine. Do you think mm -hmm. a machine is really going to write a more authoritative, trustworthy, and expert piece of content about your life than you would about your life? It's not possible. I've spoken mm -hmm. to uh, NLP specialists uh, because I am fascinated about this. And even some of the greatest in the world who are the greatest advocates for NLP will say that never will any of these machines be able to write anything as trustworthy or as factually correct as a reporter or the individual writing the article. Not possible. Now, granted, if it were a story about, you know, I don't know, the history of uh, bowling, which I don't know, yeah, I bet you AI would know a bit more than me. But if I were to spend the time and read encyclopedic articles in Wikipedia and just study about the history of bowling, I bet you over time I would write far better than a machine that's just pulling facts from nowhere and trying to weave it all together and make it sound like it's a coherent article. Yeah, you know, I'm on the same boat. I reviewed a few AI tools, check out them, even used a few of them, but you know, it takes time to edit uh, their results. And it's more about rewriting. Uh, I think we can use them even today for some uh, places uh, without competition. You know, uh, for example, I found a few financial websites uh, get a bunch of traffic just creating uh, AI uh, pages. Uh, I mean, like uh, written content with AI pages uh, for converters, uh, tools. Uh, and yeah, they get traffic because uh, without any competition, Google doesn't have another choice no, to rank something. And, and I'm sure if it's stock quotes, right? If it's generating stock quotes that are happening in real time, AI can do this. And I mm -hmm. wouldn't argue with that, right? You don't need someone to type in this particular stock is up you know, 0.2% today. Yeah. No, AI should do that, should do that. Um, mm -hmm. But I wouldn't want an analysis, a financial analysis of that company based on whether it went up 2% or not, because that's not really going to tell you about its price to earnings or its market cap or how many shares were traded. It could tell you those data points, but it can't mm -hmm. tell you forward thinking about 
you know, if it's a pharmaceutical company, for instance, let's say they had a, a, a drug that failed. They're not going to write that. You know, maybe if, they are, if something happened, they could discuss it. But unless you're doing all this stuff in real time yourself and checking it, it's prone to error. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. Uh, Michael, it's a big pleasure to get you on my show, to learn from you. You shared a lot of valuable insights. I love your stories, your examples. You know, they are great. Tell our audience how they can reach out to you, learn more about you, follow you. I'm on LinkedIn and on Twitter, although I don't use Twitter all that often. And I'm, you know, always happy to connect to anyone who wants to. Okay, guys, you can find all these links in the description below. Listen to us on Apple, Google, Spotify. Thanks again for your time. A big pleasure, valuable insights. I'm going to use many of them because I'm not good with stories. Uh, I usually pay more attention to create evergreen content, but I think, yeah, it's a good point to start, <laughs> to start doing this. Okay, guys, thanks for watching or listening to us and see you next time. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to this entire podcast. Please rank your experience in Apple, Spotify, Google, or any other platforms that you may use. Also, please share your ranking mark on chat at seotools.tv to get a special gift. We'll see you soon on other valuable audio podcasts.